We have Dr. Skip. How do you say your last name? Sviokla. 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 See, I was going to practice that out. I was going to, because I know everybody must butcher his name. Yep. And I wanted to do it, and I didn't want to do it right, so you just brought Sviokla. Sviokla. Okay, I'm sorry. Sviokla. I'm going to go with Dr. Skip. All right. So we're going to be talking about your, your book mostly. Um, it's called From Harvard to Hell and Back. Right. And, and I speak for Al and all of us that we're glad you made it back. Thank you. So am I. <laughs> so you grew up uh, in, in the area? You grew, grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts. Yep. It was uh, um, born in the 40s, so it was a different era. Um, had a couple of grandparents. Uh, all my grandparents were immigrants. Um, the only one that didn't uh, survive when I was born was my Scottish grandfather, who everybody kept quiet about. Until I was about 40 and I insisted what happened to the guy because everybody talked about him in hushed tones. And God love him, he uh, he fell off the skyscraper and evidently had been drinking. He was an iron worker in New York City. He actually worked on the Panama Canal. Got pictures of him there. Um, and then when I found out, because he was in fact the only active drinker in the family. So I didn't know he was there uh, until later when they started asking around. Um, and my paternal uh, grandparents didn't drink. My father didn't drink. My mother really didn't drink much. Uh, a couple of glasses of wine. She was very sick and just drank wine. Um, and my maternal grandmother wouldn't even think of drinking. So um, there's a contribution by genes. It's not really well understood. It, 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 the, the tendency to become addicted is higher when you get some in the family. But uh, old Francis, he must have had a, a pretty good drink on there. He had strong genes. So. All right. So um, I, I know that you mentioned in your book you did have a, um, I believe it was an uncle who played a pretty big influence in, in your life. He was a Catholic priest. Well, he, he, he was an influence. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, now that you mentioned, he did uh, drink some, but he was not certainly not an alcoholic. Yeah, it was what we call a, he was a sipping sink. Yeah, um, big, impressive fellow, um, my father's brother, uh, smooth-talking, uh, was very high in the Archdiocese of Boston, and um, he used to spend a lot of time with me and my wife after we got married. Uh, I, um, He and I did not see eye to eye on a lot of things, but he was definitely there in the beginning. I grew up. A practicing Catholic. I was an altar boy and all that kind of stuff. I I actually went to Boston College High School partly through the uh, advice of my, well, let's put it this way. Uh, I was doing very well in school. I loved school. And uh, one day I was sitting in the living room and yeah, my uncle, the priest, came over and he went into the kitchen with my father. And I loved school. I was very fortunate to just enjoy school. And uh, I was in the eighth grade, and uh, it was time to go to high school or junior high school. And they called me out to the kitchen, and they asked me directly, uh, uh, how would you like to go, because my grades were darn good, uh, to the best high school in the world. And right away, I thought, I'm going to get out of here and go to Oxford, because I thought maybe I'd go to Eton. <laughs> That's what I thought. I thought. At the playing fields of Eton, I, I had read a lot as a kid. I wanted to be an English English major. And um, and I thought, well, I'm going to miss you here in Brockton, but 
that's what was going on in my mind. I said, well, yeah, of course I do. And then my uncle said, well, that would be Boston College High School. And they could see my face fall. Uh, <laughs> so did you, want to, did you want to pack your bags? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I unpacked them. I had them. I'm packing them in my brain. And I thought, well, at least it's in Boston. And so, and then to be quite frank, uh, it was a Jesuit-run school, and schools were still very strict. And I didn't like the fact there were no going to be no girls there, but um, there were both girls are going to be in Boston. And it meant that I had to commute and, uh, you know, walk a mile and a half to the bus and take a bus to the subway and the subway to school. Um, but um, I took the entrance museum, did very well, got in and, just, and, and went there. And I'm not sorry that I went. It was a great education. I, I did very well there. So that was a major influence. I don't think if he had, if he had not been there, I wouldn't have gone to Boston College High School. I thought I'd be going to Brockton High School. Except for a few moments, I thought I was going to eat in the room. Your mother, she had uh, heart trouble. To the quiet moment. heart disease, yeah. She so had, do you think that pushed you more? Uh, did you think about medical school before? No. I, I Yes and no. I, I, I was influenced by doctors, but I didn't know anything about it at the time. My mother got rheumatic fever, um, scarlet fever, then a little bit of rheumatic fever. And at that time, penicillin had just, just come out. Uh, and she got the scarlet fever, got over the scarlet fever, but was left with a damaged heart valve, and that was very common in those days. And so she had um, one of the four heart valves, her mitral valve, became stenotic, and she became very, very sick um, and went into bad heart failure. And um, I was in the fourth or fifth grade, and I knew that, she uh, she would get sick a lot if she, um, she couldn't carry any kids to term after my two brothers were born behind me. It was a Catholic family, and there would have been more had she not. But she never she got so sick, uh, filled up with fluid, and it got into pulmonary edema because her heart was failing. And and so she actually um, my father took her into Boston. This is when I was younger in grammar school still. And uh, she was the second successful mitral valvulotomy um, wow. done in, in, in the Boston area, wow. might have been in the world. It was a way where, this is before the heart-lung machine, yeah, went into the operating room, I didn't, but the doctors did, and the doctor would put the patient on the side, put them to sleep, open them up, and then with the beating heart in his hand, um, so you couldn't stop the heart because you hadn't developed a heart lung machine yet. Uh, you put what's called a purse string suture around um, in order to stop the bleeding. You make a slice in the, in the atrium of the heart, the thin part of the heart on the top. And with a curved knife on the finger, I've seen these in museums, and slip into the beating heart and crack the valve open and came out. And at the time, the only thing that happened was the night before we went into the hospital for another surgery in Boston, my father said, well, your mother might die tomorrow. He's <laughs> a rather gruff son of a bitch. And, um, and so I went and sat there. And so, yes, it influenced me because I was terrified. And, I mean, I knew she was sick, and I sat there. But I remember after the surgery was over, the doctor came out. He had gotten all dressed, was in a three-piece brown suit. I can see him now walking down the hallway with a big smile on his face. And he said, we succeeded. Your mother's going to be better. Wow. And so that was, I, I remembered that, and then I forgot it. And then I 
by the time that I was getting through college and doing very well, I started to think, and I, I would remember that a little bit, but I, I decided I want to become a doctor because I thought I'd make a lot of money and be very immature, make a lot of money and have a lot of respect. And little did I realize that I was wrong about that. <laughs> but but compared now, uh, but but I, I uh, it certainly helped me decide. Not a bad thing to be a doctor, so I did that. So we're going to begin talking more about the uh, being a doctor and, yeah. and surgery and whatnot. But backtrack, uh, you were very good academically, but yeah. um, you were very good athlete as well, football player. I was okay. Yes, I, I didn't have a lot of talent, but I had a lot of determination. Um, you know, I'm not a skilled player, obviously. You can still see that by looking at me. But when I was in grammar school in Brockton, uh, and, and the nuns were taking care of me. Um, I was big for my age, not big by today's standards, because kids are a lot bigger, and my grandchildren are all bigger than I was by far, but um, I was big. Uh, by the time I was in the eighth grade, I, uh, I was uh, six feet tall and weighed uh, 180, and and so, and but I always growing up was large but immature, mm -hmm. and I was a pompous guy, and I used to have people don't like me a lot. Because I would teach a teacher, call on me. And, uh -huh. and, um, and I was ahead of grade, and I was big, but I was really immature. So I used to be called Sylvia instead of Sylvester, and I used to get uh, beaten up a lot. I mean, not totally beaten up, but I'd get abused and pushed around. But I, would, I hated it, and I didn't know how to fight back. And a few times I went and told my father that... Uh, you know, Joey beat me up, and uh, and then instead of telling me to grow up and go back and punch him in the face, he'd go out and look for a kid and, and give him hell and go see his father. My, my father was a, a brutish man. He was strong, and, and he was okay. He was going to protect But I thought now, 50 years later, I think that was 60 years later, was not the way to go. But anyway, so as a kid, I'd always enjoyed watching the NFL. I, I loved the Giants. And TV was brand new when I was a kid, so this predates my, my growing up and being big. And I used to sit on the on the couch, my feet didn't touch the floor, and my father, who was a, a pretty smart guy, he got a kit and built the first TV in the area. And um, it was black and white. The screen was, I think, uh, 12 inches square, and it was put in a big you put it in a big pine uh, uh, box. That was three times the size. I mean, it was more box to look at than the little square. <laughs> yeah, right? it no. yeah, it was very small, and um, it was a tube TV, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he built it in black and white, and it didn't run all day, every day. There weren't many stations, but one of the first things it did run was on Sundays. They played the Giants, oh. the New York Giants. So the Patriots hadn't even been thought of, and I used to sit and watch those guys, and I became fascinated. I loved the game. More importantly, I thought. All these guys are getting hit, and nobody seems to care about it. <laughs> and, I, and I, so I loved the game for the sport of it, and I loved everything about it. And um, since they didn't have football in grammar school, I used to walk around all the time carrying football, trying to pick up some touch games, or I wanted to play tackle, but mostly it was touch. And I thought, well, when I get into high school, the first thing I'm going to do is try out football. And um, and at Brockton High School at that time had a and probably still does, winning. They were one of the best teams in the state, even back then. But the minute I went to BC High, I couldn't wait to go up football. And I remember sitting there in the first class in the announcements where anybody wants to go up football, come out. So I did, and 
I was fortunate uh, because I was big enough and I was determined to do it. And suddenly I found, as long as you're whacking a guy back as hard as he's whacking you, it's, it's not all about physical pain. It was more about humiliation and stuff. So for me, it became a lifesaver. I mean, I, it was a self-learning and, and I, I never became a great football player, but I did play well enough to uh, to become uh, the co-captain of the high school team by the time I was a junior. And then and then I played well enough so that all the Ivy League schools um, courted me, just about all, not all of them, but all those that wanted me. Um, and I actually had a couple of, and, and they all would send people out to take me up to Brown or Dartmouth or for the weekends, and I spent some time in my senior year at BCI on weekends getting courted by the Ivy League, hmm. which were not even as good then as they are now, and they're not that good now. I got a couple of notices from some other schools. I mean, Holy Cross at the time was a better football team than it is now. Um, you got a letter from Notre Dame. But I I, I, uh, I went to Brown a couple, three times. I went to Dartmouth three times. They were really, really hurt. Dartmouth flew you out in a private plane. They, 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 they flew me out in a private plane. I had gone twice. And then when I got the acceptance to all the Ivy Leagues and I said I'm going to go to Harvard, I got a call from Bob Blackman, who was a pretty well-known coach at the time. He was in a wheelchair. He's an interesting guy. He said, I know you've been here in the winter, and I know you've been here last fall, but you're really going to see it in the spring. It was April 15th. And uh, so we're going to have somebody pick up and come up there. I said, sir, I've already I've decided to go to Harvard. That's okay. Come on up. So I went up. They flew me up in a private plane up to Hanover, New Hampshire. And we went and sat down. I had dinner with his family on the golf course because they got a golf course. It was the dinner. I don't know. <laughs> and um, it was really tough to say, well, thanks for dinner, but right. I'm still going to Harvard. Fortunately, they didn't make me answer it then. They said, well, wow. I don't think about it. So I got into Harvard, and, um, and I went to play there. And I thought, well, now I'm arrived, except that the next fall when I went out, I remember there were 110 players on the field, 92 or 93 of which were either captains or all state. So even though it was Ivy League in those days, they had a pick. And I said, I got to start all over again. Oh, wow. And so I did. And I, I was able to uh, to become, um, I, I played a lot of freshman time, a lot of junior uh, time. And then I was struck. It was an end. It was a pretty good end in high school. I got a lot of honors in high school. I they had much better ends than I was at Harvard. And the defensive line coach, a tough little guy, did now God bless him, came up to me at the end of my sophomore year because I used to love one on one. By then I was a maniac to hit people, <laughs> bull in a ring, and all that kind of yeah. stuff. It was like, yeah. and because it was my salvation, right? At least physically. I mean, it wasn't important, but it was important to me. And uh, he said, you want to play football, you come back as a tackler. So I spent the next summer getting ready and put on some weight, showed up back on the tackle. And on the 11th day of practice, but who was counting, I went from the second team up. I started the third, went to the second. On the 11th day, I replaced a senior who had been a starting tackle the year before. Oh, wow. And I did pretty well. That was your, that, that made a big difference to move the tackle right in your book. That's a defensive yeah. tackle. Right? That's correct. That was a defensive tackle. That team right there, that picture... Includes Tommy Lee Jones, the actor. Oh, and cool. uh, he was a sophomore when I was a junior. But we did, uh, in my senior year, make the championship. We lost one game. We lost all three games. We played to Princeton. I still don't like Princeton for that. <laughs> but we beat Yale all the time, which is all that mattered in those days. Now, did you keep so, in contact with Tommy Lee Jones after you played? Not, not really. No. I mean, no. I if I called him now, he, he I don't think he remembered me now. <laughs> I, I yeah, there was some contact. 
Um, he was a good player, you said, though, right? He's a great player. He's a very tough player. He uh, was mean uh, from the, from Texas, from East Texas, West Texas, I'm sorry. And uh, he was a guard and um, strong and a lot of guts and tough as nails. Uh, he's also pretty dirty. So, <laughs> so if he was trying to block me as a tackle, um, if, if he missed a little bit, I might catch a uh, illegal punch or something, but that's okay. He was a good guy. We, we actually had a lot of fun. People used to tease him a lot because in those days, the Hasty Pudding Club was a, 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 a several hundred year old institution where the Harvard guys would dress in drag all the time and do plays that were funny. And in, you know, today would today be crazy, but um, people, that's how he, he, he did that in his acting. Very smart guy, very tough guy. And um, and they used to tease him, but he was he was very very good and and uh, and did very well. Nice. So I actually got one uh, one vote for the high school. Yeah, that's what I was. Yeah, I was yeah. gonna say that. that was a, right that, <laughs> chomping at the bit to bring that that's up. That's a that's a big deal. You play it down, but that's a, that's a big. Not not many people uh, on earth can say Especially that. Especially for well, Ivy League school, yeah. where they don't get that type of consideration. What, yeah, was right? I was very lucky. The uh, uh, I hung around. Um, and when I get taped and everything, the, a former trainer for Ted Williams, who was still working for the Red Sox, he liked me, and we used to chat a lot. A lot of the reporters would come in from the Boston Herald, from the Traveler. There were three newspapers in Boston at that time, the Traveler and the Herald combined later. But one of them was a guy named Tim Horgan. He was probably the biggest sports writer at the time. And he would always he'd always give me good press. For a defensive tackle, I get better press than I deserve. <laughs> and and he had a vote, and he gave me a vote and said that this is what a, a you know a college football player ought to be. Didn't say that I was the greatest tackle in the world. <laughs> it was it was a, a general right. But that's one out of thousands now. Let's, let's remember that. Still, well, are in the you, you did try out for yeah, I got a, I did not try out, but oh, I got oh, a letter. Okay. I, and, and to this day, I regret not having tried out. And that was the last discussion where I ever listened to my father, and I never heard that. Um, I got a letter from an organization, probably, I don't know if it's even around still, Blesto B, B-L-E-S-T-O, Bears, Lions, Eagles, Steelers, Vikings, Scouting Combine. And they did not draft me, but I got a letter from them saying that if I came out for free agent camp and they wanted me to be, now, mind you, I was at that time I weighed about 238, and, and I, was, I was still six feet half an inch tall. But I was pretty fast. I mean, I, I wasn't the fastest lineman on the field, but I was pretty close. And they said, "You come out and try out for the Chicago Bears. Uh, we'll make you. Uh, we'd like to make you a cornerback." Right. And at that time, uh, Buckus was still playing for the Bears, mm-hmm. and I thought. What an honor to get creamed. <laughs> I had no illusions that I was going to be able to, to knock him over. If you've ever seen films of him play, yeah. him play. he's, I don't care what they say about the money guy. He, he used, he's famous. I remember one time he, I saw him talking, he spit on, a, he used to spit on the ball with, uh, in Chalk Chew. And, um, and I think it was Yale Larry, an all-pro center who said, when they asked him about it, what did you do about it? He said nothing because when the when I complained to the the linesman, he'd just say, 
he tells me it's raining. <laughs> and then the ball covered yeah. in So, uh, yeah. Uh, but I I also got admitted to Harvard Medical School at that time. So I had a letter to Harvard Medical School and I had this letter to the Bears. And in all honesty, I, I don't think I would have made it. I was going to get a whole $5,000 bonus. That's within a year of Joe Namath getting $400,000. Wow. So that'll put it in perspective. But I had to I had to earn a position and they negotiated salary. And I wanted to go, I wanted to go, and I went to see the old man, and he was paying for the medical school, and he said, I don't want you to go and hurt your hands. And I said, well, I, I, and I listened to him, and I didn't go. I, I don't think I would have made it, but I'll never know, and so that's the only regret I had. Right. I mean, I could have made the taxi squad with him. Right. So you went to Harvard Medical, yeah. which I assume is pretty much the best of the best, and you did have your, your, your trials. That's correct. I failed my first year in Harvard Medical School. That's correct. And I had to repeat it, and I kept See, everything had come easily to me then. I I, I, I got through college. High school was a breeze, um, and, and college was a breeze. And I got pretty cocky about that because getting all the great grades and things that I got didn't take me, didn't take me much. I loved reading, so that was easy. It wasn't like I just made the stuff up. Right. But the assignments were good, um, and, I, and I tested well. And I thought I could keep on partying through medical school. And the first year... They made the announcement to show you how silly I am. I'm sitting in the in the first uh, arrangement. There are only 100 people in the class. And uh, they're saying, well, we're going to go uh, with our grades this year, pass, fail. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, that was a big mistake. And I met the most beautiful woman I ever met in my life that year. And I, we kind of dated. And she, it's not her fault. It's my fault. But we, I, we, I didn't study much. And I... And I kept doing the test, and I kept getting in there, and and I would just I would get little comments saying this could be better than that, but they didn't grade on it, and they never once said pass or fail on the test. So at the end of the first year there, I uh, I got called into the dean's office as I was leaving to go home to Brockton to get married the very next day, and the dean called me in and he told me, uh, I'm sorry, it's partly our fault for not telling you, but you haven't done very well. You failed your first year medical school and we'd like to keep you around and test you and see what we can do and I had no idea he said so what are you doing over the next couple of days I said I'm getting married tomorrow he said oh I'm sorry <laughs> but it's a damn well problem. in the book I was funny you go try to have fun you're like yeah it's easy for you to say <laughs> and uh and I did what all good incipient addicts did I lied and my poor <laughs> wife I didn't tell her for many many months it was Terrible honeymoon, I'm sure, from her perspective and mine. I wasn't very excited uh, about anything. So what am I going to do? I came back. Um, I, I lied to her again. I, I said I was getting work at the, in the labs. And I was I just afraid to tell her, frankly. Right. I mean, it's the biggest embarrassment in my life. The first thing I had ever felt that. And I, and I knew it was my fault. And I just parted the whole time. And, and I thought I could do the exams. And uh, so anyway, they uh, they gave me a choice. They studied me for you know, a long time, many days, with a couple of psychiatrists. They watched me and they made me put things together. And I remember that, you know, the psychi- some of the psychiatrists would pretend to go out of the room, come back in their room, and, and then I'd look at, they'd write, uh, patient gets uh, vulgar when he can't do things like, they're trying to make me make a circle out of blocks and change shit. And, <laughs> and, and uh, I thought, oh God, I'm in trouble now. But they... At the end of the assessment, they called me and said, well, listen, this is the deal. We think you're smart enough to stay here. Uh, they said a little bit more than that, but I'm not 
Yeah, I, I can't remember. Right. Name, but they, they said, so, you have a choice. Repeat the first year. Or a very good school in North Carolina. And there were two of them there, and they were telling me which one it is. Agreed to take me as a second year student and tutor me in the things that I had done poorly. And I hadn't blown everything. But, and so I said, I'm staying. Not without question, not And then a couple of years into medical school, I found surgery, and all of a sudden, I, I, I was, I loved it. Yeah, you, you, it's sort of like in the book, you're like, it's a kind of like an epiphany you had yeah. with surgery where it was just. I, I, I love taking out gallbladders. I love seeing it. It's crazy. It wasn't sexy like a neurosurgeon or like the heart surgeon to save my mother, but it was fun. And it was in the right upper quadrant. In those days, you opened it up and you went in there. And all kinds of varieties occur there. It really was fun to be in there. And as a student, we did most of the watching, but. I loved it, and I thought, I can do this, and, and I like this to be a general surgeon in the belly. Uh, again, uh, and so I really, I lived, I lived for that, and, right. and, did, and, and did pretty well. Now, at this time, um, if I'm not mistaken, you, you were married, and you're, you're doing surgery. Right. You're happy. It's, yep. your, it's what you felt you Call. were called to do. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, now, at this time, you were, you were drinking. Right, it's yeah, just, it's I, I would, yeah. When I was off duty, I never drank on duty. Right, I didn't. And the accident that I had that made me leave surgery had nothing to do with drinking. Right, can you uh, can you tell uh, the listeners? Yeah, I, we, we had a we we had a, a, a crystal ball bowl, large bowl that was very pretty and very thin at the top and very heavy at the bottom, made in West Virginia, very famous glass place, West Virginia glass. And we had gotten that for a present, and I was home one day, and. We had three kids at the time, a, a two-year-old and, a, and two one-year-olds. My wife cooked the dinner. She did the dishes. She took all the three kids out. And I was home on Sunday and had me drink. Um, and uh, the drinking I did at that time, I mean, I've been, you know, like any other, I, I wasn't drinking more than once, but I was, and I never go and smell it. But that day, I didn't drink anything. And... Um, both my wife and I kind of got a little OCD, and I, I noticed there were some dry spots, uh, water spots on this beautiful crystal bowl, and I and I picked it up to knock the dry spots off, and when I lifted it up by the side of the thing, it literally exploded. We later found out the glass was annealed incorrectly, and it just popped, and it came down on my hand, cut five tendons, my ulnar artery, my ulnar nerve, and I grabbed a towel, put it on there, drove around past my wife once and then she saw me and came running over and I went to this where I was a, a senior resident and you know, well known I went in there I think I was in surgery nine hours um, they had to put back five tendons they reconnected the nerve I had a lot of little cuts in the back of my hand and I'm right-handed and suddenly the operating room which had been a wonderful place for me became terrifying right I just I, I went back in, I tried to operate, and I, I, I would stick my hand in the way. Normally, when you feel things, I could feel nothing. So they wanted me to stick around and give it more time to heal. And I, at that time, um, emergency medicine was starting. I had a friend who had left surgery going to emergency medicine, called me up, told me how much money he was making, said, um, why don't you do this? And I, was, I didn't have the same feeling. I'd gone from completely confident in the operating room to very scared, and I thought, in, in all honesty, my best thought was, I can't ask people to let me operate on them if I can't give them their best. So I left surgery after 
the chief and everybody said, don't do it. Stick around, let it heal. We'll give you another year or two of research. And I, I said, no. And I was making at that time $8,900 a year. And in the emergency rooms in Los Angeles, they were making about 10 grand a month. Wow. And uh, so now, what year was this? This was in 1972. Oh, 72. Uh, yeah. And emergency medicine had just become a specialty. And uh, and then I did emergency medicine for the next few years. Wow. And then that didn't do it for you. I mean, you were, you were very happy. I mean, you were making the money. I was making the money. That's correct. But the, the, whatever. Yeah. I, I was happy, but I was overworked. I was living too high a life. Um, I got friends with. You know, some famous people took care of a lot of a lot of rock and rolls, as we've discussed in the past, and uh, flying all around, spending more than I was making, and, and um, I blew up to 400 pounds. Had one of the very early gastric bypasses, which you know uh, I clearly wasn't happy because I was weightlifting, and uh, I was trying to balance so many things at the time, and uh, then I got hooked on Vicodin after that surgery. And then uh, uh, I had been drinking some, and I couldn't drink after that operation. Uh, I had lied about how much I was drinking before I did the operation. Actually, most everybody does. And uh, and then as I was losing 100 pounds, I I had a wound infection. I had several things go wrong, and I got hooked on Vicodin. I started taking a Vicodin, and then shortly after I I started to. Um, I was mostly managing emergency rooms, and I wasn't seeing many patients at all. I was seeing some, and I worked my way up to about 150 Vicodins a day. That I was prescribing for myself. Couldn't get away with that now, but in those days, I was sending people all around the county of San Diego to get my prescriptions, and uh, and I thought I was fooling everybody, and I wasn't. So, uh, walked in one day, found out that they were waiting for me, and uh, and then. Uh, uh, that was it. So I actually drove by the house and saw the board of medicine at my house coming to take away my So you, at this time, you were in California, yeah. correct? Mm -hmm. uh, you were in emergency correct. rooms. Uh, yeah. Um, you, you said you were, at that time you were um, dealing with the celebrities. Of yes, I had been. I had been. When I moved down to San Diego, I, I slowed down on it, but it was a really good job, and I liked San Diego a lot. Um, yeah, but I had been, I had been taking care of all celebrities. So the minute I lost the license, all that stuff was off. Um, I, uh, I lost my license. They didn't just suspend it, they revoked it. And they gave, said I had to, I'd have to work my way back in. Now the reason that you uh, got hooked on painkillers, it was from that surgery that operated? It was, but, but I, it, it was like all other addicts, suddenly I like euphoria and I didn't need I kept asking for it, and when I couldn't get it, I found that unlike now, I could write them. I could write them in Mary Jones and send her up, Jimmy Jones and send him up, and they were all friends. And I paid for them cash because I wrote them. In. So I lost it. They made it hell for me, and they should have. I'm not saying they, 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 they made it hard. And after five years of continuing to try to do everything right, I will say uh, I was only sober from the pills. I didn't have any illegal suppliers except myself. So I didn't have any dealer to go. So when I uh, when I left it, I certainly wasn't going to go out and try to find a dealer because I, I was sure I was going to end up in jail anyway. Right. And they gave me a break and didn't throw me in jail. 
but after about six, seven, eight weeks, I decided to start drinking again. And so I put my own recovery off for another year. And I had lost everything when we moved the house. I became homeless. My wife had to live in an apartment. We lost everything. And I was near the end. I, 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 I lived on a rooftop in Southern California for the last several months. Uh, and was homeless, essentially. Oh, my wife had a place I was ashamed to go see her. Uh, she stuck by me when nobody else would. And, um, but I, I couldn't get a job anyway. Right. And they kept moving after I got sober one day when I decided one day that um, uh, I didn't know how to stop drinking. I, I, I used to walk over to the edge of the building and look down and think I want to kill myself. But it was only two stories down. And yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, I did used to do that. I used to try to calculate, can I really keep my head down all the way? It's only two stories, but if I don't hit the head right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be worse. And then... Uh, and then I used to spring all day, and I used to go in the morning to AA meetings, and and then um, and I would think, why can't I be like these people? Why can't I be like these people? Why am I different than these people? But when I was sitting there looking at a bottle of pop off vodka, I mean, I used to steal stuff from, I actually stole from the store a couple times, stole from my family, and I, I was hiding from everybody. I looked and smelled like every bad alcoholic you can think of. I mean, and I kept thinking, why can't I figure this out? Why can't I figure this out? And then one day, in, in the agony, by that time I was sleeping for about 30 minutes a day. I would fall asleep, and when I would wake up, I'd be, oh my God, I got to do another another whole day of this because, you know, once you're drinking at that level, sleep is elusive and sleep is no good. And, right. And um, but I just was looking at this bottle, and and I had about a half left, and I thought, why can't I figure this out? And why? And, and I realized, wait a minute, I'm not like those alcoholics, I'm one of them. And for me, that was a moment of realization. See, I've been trying to figure out what's different for me, because I saw lots of alcoholics look good and sound good, and I believe them. Not all of them. You know, you right. know I mean, a lot of people look bullshit until they get it. But I knew people, I thought, well, why am I different from them? Well, I wasn't. And the minute I did that, it allowed me, and I never had Another drink since I left that bottle on the thing. I climbed down. I went to my wife's apartment. I said, Will you please? Uh, can I sleep inside tonight? Uh, and, and she said, Okay. Uh, but she was ready to get rid of me. And she didn't even argue. I slept on the floor in a corner just to be warm. I mean, it was in California, but it was December and warm. It was actually December 1st. And, um, and I, uh, I said to her in the morning, I said, uh, I'm. I'm I'm not going to try to commit you. I just don't think I'm going to hear you again. And I have. Right. So we uh, went through the Harvard part. Yeah. We, we just went through the hell. Yep. Um, let's talk about impact, the, the part where you came back and how it occurred. Right. I, I was very lucky again. I, I had been lucky the first time in my life when I had failed medical school and they let me mm -hmm. repeat it. And then I got lucky when I cut my hand terribly and get a chance to do the medicine. Now... Nobody wants a defrocked doctor to be in their emergency room. I don't right. care how enlightened they are. You don't want your cardiologist being an ex oncologist. Yeah. You know. So all of a sudden there was this addiction medicine field. I came back here because a graduate of Harvard Medical School was running, was working at Brown, and my wife wrote him a letter and said, "Can you help my husband? Um, he's not getting his license back in." And I had had a license in Mass in Rhode Island way back. And so 
I could reapply. I came back, I reapplied. They said, well, you know, we'll test you and everything, but you're going to have to go on a five-year treatment plan. No problem, because by the time I'd gotten back there, I hadn't had a drink in three or four years. I hadn't had anything wrong. But I had no employment. Nobody wanted to hire me. There was nowhere to go. So I came here. Uh, Dr. Femerell down in uh, North Kingston hired me as help. I didn't yet have my license. I started going to these meetings for five years, getting eight tests a month to begin with to show that I was completely clean. I loved working there for minimum wage, helping him. And as soon as I became a doctor, I started to develop up my own style and left and, and have opened this place and have been very fortunate ever since. Well, you've helped me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, no. I, I love my patients. I love my patients. Now, do you, do you find that, um, you know, since you've been through it all, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm assuming that most doctors who do what you do have it. How does that help you in, in, in relating and dealing with your patients and helping them? Well, it's it's a mixed blessing. I, I am of the opinion now, and I get trouble for anybody who doesn't agree with me on this, but I really think that it's at least very hard for a non-addict to treat addicts who really have a hardcore case because they haven't been there, they don't know. They're either too lenient or they get disgusted. Mm-hmm. I don't get disgusted. I, I, so when it comes to taking care of patients, a lot of people, when they first meet me, and I'm very open about it, and that's one of the lucky things for me. There are a lot of good doctors who are reformed, recovering alcoholics or drug addicts. They are not at liberty to say what they do generally, and I understand that. Right. As I say, you don't want to go to your cardiologist. Even if he's the best cardiologist around, you, you can't be sure. But in my field, it doesn't hurt me, so I'll start. And then I, I can sometimes, and sometimes I will even answer my own questions, and they'll go, you understand, and I'll go, I do. But remember this, when I get a urine this dirty, I'm going to tell you this dirty, and don't try to tell me it's not your urine. Let's shortcut all the stuff, because we, as practicing active alcoholics and addicts, lie all the time. And until we get better, and even until a little after we get better, Telling the truth is not a normal thing to do. And that is the hang-up. And um, so I will hang with people until it becomes ludicrous. There are other doctors who aren't addicts who are willing to cut them some slack and just make sure they have Narcan and send them out and don't worry about it. At least they're using less. Or see, what they're doing, in my view, is they're denying the obvious. Until an addict actually comes to grips with it. And even if you have to be harsh about it, say, listen, you and I both know it. I don't care about yesterday. Let's do it today. And sometimes it's just they continue and continue and continue to make up lies to examine their behavior. I'll do my best to get them into a higher level of care and everything. Else. So I think being an addict makes me a much better doctor. Sometimes I can be quick and, and angry when I've had, you know, I'm a human being, you know, you know, but basically I'm willing to go the extra mile and the extra mile and the extra mile. Unless you're just tired of talking to me and you're insulted, in which case I'd say, I'm sorry, I'm just looking out for your best interest. And so, you know, I'm certainly not the perfect doctor. But I don't think that many of the young physicians now will say, treat them nicely. I say treat them with respect, but don't listen otherwise. They're lying to you. If they're not driving, if they're not doing well, and prove it with urines. Even today, they're starting to say, well, you shouldn't even worry about the urines. You have to worry about the urines. Right. It's, in, it's insane not to. So I think it's helped me. Uh, and, you know, were I nicer and a little kinder, maybe I would get some people saying I'm a harsh man, that's that, 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 
But I've had patients with me for a long time who know, even patients who leave here angry, swear, call it, can I come back? Right. And the answer is always yes, of course you can. Yeah, the reason people get mad is because you see through the bullshit when most doctors Most of the time, that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. That's what my experience. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it is with most people. I'll just say, listen, it's hard. I know it's hard, but by agreeing, you can let it go for a little while. But the trouble today with the fentanyl that's out there now, you can't afford, the Narcan isn't even working with worse than the fentanyl that's right. out there now. So you can't say, well, here's your Narcan, it's okay, because even if your buddy that you're using with, who, by the way, are the usual administrators of the Narcan, another, right. okay, but five, six, seven amps not bringing people back, this stuff, instead of, remember, pure heroin, pure, is twice as strong as morphine. This fentanyl starts at 20 times as powerful as morphine and goes up to 100 times. That's insane. And that stuff is so strong. It, imagine, morphine's a one, heroin is two. The stuff that's out there called fentanyl is not really hospital fentanyl. It's, it's a mix of from 20 to 100 times. Two logs higher, not double the strength. So you've got to get away from it in order to get better. Right. So handing somebody some Narcan and saying, okay, try to use less, is not the best approach. Because they're going to come back dead, and the deaths from fentanyl continue to rise. Absolutely. So uh, what do you, uh, in part, uh, what, what do you have um, to say to people who are struggling through this addiction or have family members who um, is dealing with it with their kids or, or, or whatnot? What, what do you have to say to get rid of it? I have to say that normal is better, and a lot of times you can fool yourself into thinking you're different and you don't want to be normal. You'd like to be normal, but you can't because you have a special need, you have special dopamine, you have to feel better, you're just not like those normal folks over there. And anybody, I I didn't start this mess, you know, start to start this mess until I was 53 years old. And uh, so it's, it's a matter... If I could stop at 53 with, and did not have any medical assisted treatment at that time, medication assisted treatment, there's very much hope. Suboxone for opiates can give you a very quick, painless detox. And if you're willing to stay off of all other opiate drugs, of, of all other uh, mind altering drugs, this is really a much better time to get clean and get off it. Because you don't have the lingering post-acute withdrawal that you have with other methods. So the medicines today are better. There is hope. You can go without medicines. But to turn, turn, turn down medication-assisted treatment, to not even try Suboxone, given correctly, not from the street, you'll find out that you can quickly get to normal and then begin to get your life back. And that's what you can do. And you can do it well. Excellent. I'm glad you kept saying hope because this is, you know, why we wanted to interview you for people out there who's yeah. listening to that who need that hope. You yeah. Know, like they're, yeah. They're, and the end of their rope that they see a person like you who've gone through your life and your struggles and came back from this. And uh, your story is very exciting. Um, you just you just scratched the tip of the iceberg of your life. There's more in the book. So uh, we will have the information on your book from. How about the hell I'm back? How to get it and where to get it. For the people who want to read it. And it's, it's very inspiring. And yeah. uh, we thank you for being here. And I, I, just to end on a, another note, is I just want to say thank you for all you've done for me because I'm a patient of Dr. Skip and 
he's uh, put my life back together. So you thank made you. it pretty easy because I, I know I, I appreciate you. it. You're a good guy. Thank you for doing and, this podcast, and, and, and thank you for making me a first. I appreciate it. I really do. I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you. And right, I was very grateful you made it back. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.